Hello, everyone. Welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy and Consilience meeting. I think this is the 12th session uh, in this series that, that, that is being held. And uh, today I have the honor of, of chairing the meeting for uh, what the title is Folly of Crowds. Uh, what um, I, I hope we, we, we all have, have some idea of, of what, what the, we will be talking about, but just to put it briefly in context, uh, the idea for this session was we always think that groups are uh, better than individuals. We always think that, especially like within animals, uh, we have always heard how, how great and brilliant they are. Uh, when when Tali, who, who is not here today, and, and I were, were thinking about this session, I was very excited about let's find out when, when actually ants get it all wrong. And can we find someone who, who can tell us about times when, when animals are not good at it? And also uh, the other motivation for this session was, was to see if as part of the animal kingdom, are we the only ones who get it wrong when, when, when we do things in groups? Because it looks like insects get it right. Uh, b baboons, even last week, there was a paper saying that baboons are very good at democratic collective decisions. <laughs> so uh, I, I was wondering if it is only us. And, and therefore, we thought we would put together this, this panel. And I will go through and introduce the panel to you. But you, you will get to talk to them across the session. And, and you, you, you will, I'm sure, by the end of it, agree with me how brilliant they are in their work. So on my right, I have Dr. Sepide Bazzazi, biologist from Oxford University and, and, and Princeton, who is here uh, from, from uh, after he has, she has been uh, doing, doing her postdoctoral research in France recently. And she will be telling us about uh, collective behavior in animal kingdoms, mostly in insects. Her specific uh, particular topic is cannibalistic locusts, which is so great. <laughs> but on my left, I have Peter Ayton, who is the Associate Dean of Research and the Deputy Dean of Social Sciences at the City University. And uh, um, I'm, what, what I'm hoping is that Peter Ayton can, can, can help us get a, a uh, summary of, of what, what we have from social sciences and what we know about uh, groups of humans interacting with each other or making decisions together. And on the far left, I have Professor Chris Frith, the uh, new philosopher, I would say. He has recently joined the, the Institute of Philosophy at the University of London after a brilliant stellar career in uh, human neuroscience. And, and I used to be one of his postdocs, so, so it's a great honor to have him here. And uh, Chris will tell us about uh, the psychology of collective decision-making and perhaps some bits about the brain, if we can persuade him to. <laughs> but anyways, without further ado, I'll, I'll just ask uh, Sepida to please start with her presentation. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me here to talk. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about animal groups and uh, collective behavior in animal groups. And... I'm sure you've all probably seen an example of collective behavior. It's quite ubiquitous in nature. Um, and these animals generally form quite spectacular coordinated motion. And uh, uh, as a result of kind of synchronized behavior, uh, for example, fish schools or flocks of birds, 
mass migrations in insects and things. And what's uh, quite fascinating is sometimes it happens between um, individuals that are not related at all, um, and sometimes the individuals are extremely related, so it makes sense to be in a group and help each other in a group. And there are many advantages to being in a group, and one of the big ones is you're able to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So, for example, this is a human example. It's not really animals, but I think it demonstrates quite nicely. Recently in London, a crowd of people managed to lift a bus when a unicyclist, his leg got trapped under the bus. And immediately when that happened, everybody self-organized. There was no leader involved. There was no central control. They came together and they lifted this bus without really talking about it. And that's kind of the nature of collective behavior. It's a lot of numerous simple interactions that when you scale at a collective level becomes quite uh, complicated. And that's basically what I've been studying. Um, This is a picture of me last year in Australia. And I got very excited when I saw this termite nest um, because it's an incredible uh, feat of architecture. Thousands, millions of termites come together and they create through putting together the sediment, the soil, the mud, this amazing structure, which they wouldn't be able to do alone, or if they did, it would take a very long time. And moving on from architecture for your home to kind of living architecture, ants can actually create a bridge using their own bodies and linking it together to be able to overcome obstacles in their way. And ants are quite amazing in many ways, Um, These are leafcutter ants that you can find in Central and South America, and they set off and they go out to find food. Um, And actually what they do is they go and they cut leaves. That's what they're doing here. They're bringing back the pieces of leaves that they've cut back to the nest. And this is, uh, I hope you can see, it's a nest that's being excavated. And what's happened is it's been pumped full of cement. And that's just to highlight the sheer size of these nests. They contain millions and millions of ants all working together. And the ants go out, leave the nest in search of leaves. They cut the leaves, they bring them back. They feed a fungus in the nest, those leaves, and then the fungus grows. And then the ants feed on the fungus. So it's actually an amazing example of uh, Agriculture, the very first example, I think, of agriculture. And when ants go out, they leave a trail, a pheromone trail of chemicals. And other ants follow that trail, and in following, they also lay a pheromone trail as well, which encourages further ants to follow the trail. Bees also, another social insect, all kind of related, um, do are amazing in solving problems as a group. If um, a colony of bees needs to find a new nest um, because their current nest has been destroyed uh, or for whatever reason, uh, bees will go out and they will uh, have a look at what's out there and they will come back and they will inform the members of the group through a a waggle dance to communicate the location and uh, the direction of the, the new nest that they found. And the way, the speed at which they do that waggle dance informs the quality of that nest. And then they recruit other bees. Other bees go out, they look at the nest that the other one showed them, and they come back and they relay the same information through a dance. And once they reach a critical threshold of bees that all agree on a particular nest, then every bee goes to that nest. And it's, again, it's this idea of 
positive feedback, which is the amplification of an effect through that very effect. So the, in this case, it's uh, the dance, the communication uh, leading to other bees doing that behaviour as well, and then that's amplified through uh, their influence on other bees. So it's really down to the fact that the individuals and groups can influence and be influenced by others. And then there's this element of reaching a critical threshold. And reaching a threshold in this case was to do with once everybody agrees on a particular nest. But in other animal groups, it can be just a critical number of individuals. For example, in locust swarms, if there are enough individuals, the swarm changes from being a random kind of mass motion to a kind of persistent unidirectional coordinated motion. And it's these two elements that I want to kind of focus on a little bit because these, there are many other principles um, that come into animal behavior, but these ones can allow the group to sometimes not make very good decisions. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. This is a classic exp experiment in ants. There's the nest at the bottom and the food, and the ants have to move between the, these two points. And there's a very, very long path, and there's a very short path. And the question is, can the ants solve this uh, dilemma? Can they find the shortest path? And when you let the ants uh, set off in any way they want, they've set off randomly, and they choose um, either path. It's, it's, they have no preference at the beginning. But by default, the shorter path will take less time, and these ants are laying down pheromones. And those pheromones are going to be followed by other ants, who then also lay down the pheromone. So actually what we find is that the shortest path has the strongest pheromone signal, and so it quickly becomes um, the path that everybody takes. And so the ants can very easily solve this problem. But what happens if you present the ants with a very long path to begin with and no short path, they will go down the long path. It's the only path that they can take. But if you then present a shorter path alongside that long path, the ants have become locked into that lo long path. They are unable to adapt because the signal, the pheromone signal, is above that threshold still. And so in this way, they become locked in a kind of suboptimal choice. Um, and this is a classic example of ants becoming locked in this suboptimal choice because if ants form a circular pheromone trail, they're going to be following themselves around in a circle and they can't break out. And the only way that this uh, circle of doom kind of ends is when all the ants die because that's the only way that's going to stop them marching around. So these um, ideas from ants are quite interesting because it shows that they're actually quite sensitive to the initial conditions. When the conditions change, they're unable to adapt. There has to be a kind of fine-tuning, a negative feedback almost, to make those decisions optimal when, when there's variance. And this is similar to another example in the human world, uh, where in the 70s there were two formats for the video cassette, the VHS and the Betamax. And the initial, condi in, initial conditions was that the Betamax was actually marketed, I think, as the better product. But more shoppers went out and bought the VHS. And because of that, that led more shoppers buying the VHS because they thought it was better because more people were buying it. And as a result, the Sony Betamax died away and the VHS succeeded. So it kind of leads us to question 
uh, our collective decision making is it really good quality the movies that we watch or the songs that we listen to or is it just we're following uh, what other people think the initial conditions are we too sensitive to all of that I'm going to talk a little bit now about slightly different aspect of um, collective behavior um, one of the benefits of being in a group is that it, you can minimize your risk of predation so this is a picture from the National Ge Geographic Instagram page of a shark and a shoal of fish. And the, um, the fish can move away from the periphery and be closer to the center um, in order to minimize their risk of being attacked from the periphery of the shoal. And this was an idea that was put forward. It was called the selfish herd hypothesis by Hamilton in the 70s. And that's uh, very true in other animal groups. These are the Mormon crickets that you can find in Utah, hence their name, <laughs> the Mormon cricket. Um, and they form these mass migrations across the landscape. And they, they march across the roads, and they can actually cause quite hazardous conditions for the, driving, the drivers there because they make the roads really slippery. And it's quite a huge pest problem because they consume a lot of the vegetation. And yet what's incredible is that they're cannibals, now, there's an advantage to being in this group because experiments have shown that if you displace an individual out of the group, that individual is more likely to be predated. But there's a very high risk to being in this group because you can be eaten if you remain in the group. So why do, the group, why do individuals remain in the group if there's a very high risk? Um, this idea of cannibalism is also prevalent in the desert locust. So... Uh, locust swarms, I'm sure you've seen in the news, can cause huge devastation. Um, they can stretch for kilometers and contain millions of individuals. And um, in their flying form, the adult form, they're even more destructive than the juvenile uh, marching bands that they form. But they allow us to study this kind of collective behavior in a lab setting. And so what we found uh, during my research was that these locusts are also cannibals and that we can study these marching bands of juvenile insects because they don't fly. So you can put them in an arena and you can watch them go around and see what happens. So the question we really were interested in is does cannibalism play a role in the onset and maintenance of collective motion? Given that these swarms are so coordinated, maybe cannibalism has a part in that and so to test that um, we manipulated the way that individuals could feel touch from other individuals and that means that we had to cut the nerves of locusts in a group so I did a little surgery on the locusts where I cut uh, the nerve that was responsible for sensitivity in the abdomen so essentially the locust was numb in their abdomen, and they couldn't feel touch. They couldn't feel an aggressive attack or cannibalism on their abdomen. And then there were control insects, which could feel uh, sensitivity. They were sensitive to touch. And then I put them in an arena and filmed them from above and tracked their movements using automated tracking software and looked at their speed and the number of moving locusts to see how does it affect uh, group motion. What is the difference between these control insects that can feel everything and these nerve-cut insects that 
don't have sensitivity in their abdomen. And when you look at individuals on their own, having the nerve cut makes no difference to their inherent behavior. An isolated locus with its nerve cut and an isolated locus with its nerve intact move the same amount, spend the same amount of time moving and move with the same speed. But when you look at the groups, firstly, there's more cannibalism in the nerve cut uh, groups. So individuals can't feel themselves being bitten and just get eaten. So there's more injury due to cannibalism. But also, fewer insects are moving. So in the control experiments, we can see that the proportion of moving locusts is very high, whereas in the nerve cut experiments, the difference emerges very quickly and they're much lower. So they're spending less time moving. And in addition to touch, we, should, we can also look at vision. So we can blind locusts. I realize these experiments are a little bit cruel to these insects, but it actually reveals a lot about their behavior. So if you blind a locust by painting its eyes with black acrylic paint, you will see that in a group, the locusts move much less than when they can see. It kind of makes sense. But what's fascinating is that if you only blind them with, uh, if you, from behind so that they cannot see visual input from behind, it's almost as though they're completely blind. And so that means that they're strongly responding to visual input from behind, such as other locusts approaching, the threat of cannibalism. So all these experiments kind of reveal that mass migration in locusts is actually driven by very selfish behavior. And so these coordinated swarms that we see are not actually cooperative. They're actually driven by aggressive cannibalistic behavior. And so these locusts are biting each other but risk being bit bitten themselves. Um, and uh, the threat of cannibalism also drives this movement. And, and in doing so, those individuals that move bite other individuals, again, we have this positive feedback, this kind of autocatalytic movement drives other movement, which drives other movement. And so, the, in essence, we have a forced march driven by cannibalism, um, which had never really been known before, because everyone who'd, who'd looked at these groups always thought this is a coordinated swarm of individuals, but actually... It's not so cooperative. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Fantastic. I think we'll just carry on directly to the next speaker, and then we'll take the questions at the very end. So our next speaker is Chris, and he will be talking about the human side of, of cooperation and collective behavior and when it goes wrong. <clears throat> Yes, it seems to me fairly self-evident that groups of people should be able to make better decisions than individuals, just as, and as we've seen, ants and bees can do it, so why not humans? And the reason, of course, groups, even just a group of two, has access to more brain power and more information. And this is, of course, the basis of things you probably know about, like Galton's um, Vox Populi experiment where he showed that if you took all the guesses for the weight of an ox in a country fair, the mean guess 
the average of all these guesses was closer to the actual weight than the winning guess. Again, the group was doing better. And, of course, it's the basis of Condorcet's jury theorem, which says that the more jurors you have, as long as they're all slightly better than chance at making the right decision, the better the final decision will be. But, of course, as we all know, group decisions seem often to go wrong. And I want to discuss five such problems, or possibly four and a half such problems. (laughs) The first problem is the lack of independence between people. And this is something we all learned, I'm sure all of you learned, in your very first statistics course, which the, the data should be independent. So, for example, if I tested one person 50 times, you would not be very convinced that I had discovered anything about people in general, and you'd be much more convinced if I tested 50 people once each. Again, I would have to be sure that they weren't all talking to each other and influencing each other. I want the data to be independent. And, of course, it's the same when groups make decisions, which Bahador has actually been studying. So a group will make a better decision about what they have just seen if they make their individual decisions first before they discuss. If they discuss first, the group decision will not be as good, and that's because they've influenced each other and you're no longer getting a completely independent set of information to build the group decision on. And I suggest that maybe we can see this happening in real life because, of course, particularly these days, our knowledge of the world is hardly ever independent. We all get information from newspapers, televisions, Twitter, and so on. And so our information is correlated And this, of course, will be even worse when the media is controlled by rather few people. This is bad for group decision-making, in my opinion. Now, the second problem concerns the sort of discussions that we have and concerns the strength with which people hold their beliefs. So typically, when we do discuss things with other people, there are two factors which will influence our final decision – One will be simply the majority, that is to say, if most of the people we interact with have a certain opinion, that's likely to affect our final decision. But it will also be affected by the strength with which people express their opinions. So a few people with very strong opinions will have more influence, and indeed you can get, I mean, there are nice models of this, a minority of people with strongly expressed opinions can overcome a majority with weaker beliefs. And there's an interesting publication showing a slightly surprising effect that this, you can damp down the effect of this vociferous minority if you have in your population a large number of uninformed people. So these are people who don't have any opinion one way or the other. If you have a lot of those, they will damp down the effect of the vociferous minority and the majority decision is more likely to win. Again, you can see this going wrong in our media-saturated society because opinions, as opinions become more polarised and there's less and less independence, there'll be fewer and fewer such uninformed people to damp down the effects of vociferous opinions. Now, the third problem, which is the one I know most about and 
talk longer about, is we have this strange belief that we're all equal. So I was talking about you can have people with strong, highly confident opinions and other people with weak opinions. In most of the cases, we don't have particularly strong opinions and we express them accurately. In other words, outside the political arena, our confidence in our, the likely outcome of our decision is fairly well correlated with what the outcome will actually be. When we're confident, our decision is usually right. When we're not confident, our decision is more likely to be wrong. Now, in the lab, we typically ask people to rate their confidence on a six-point scale. So a confidence of five is more likely to be associated with the right answer than a confidence of three. But although people are accurate, they may differ in the way they use such scales. So one person may only use the rating three to six. So he is overconfident, although he's accurate in the distinction between six and three, whereas another person only uses the ratings one to four. So she is underconfident. So she's equally accurate at distinguishing four and one, but she's consistently underconfident. And this obviously will create problems if these two people work together. For example, the rule of thumb would be on each occasion I will choose, I will take the decision of the more confident person. But in the people I've just, the pair I've just described to you, the, the underconfident, when the underconfident person says four, she's actually more likely to be right than when the overconfident person says four. So they somehow have to match the scale of confidence that they're using. Now, what is, it, I think, fascinating is that people do actually seem to do this. You can achieve this simply by making sure that you're using the same range of ratings and thus both have the same average confidence rating. And Dan Bang, who's sitting at the back there, has done some very beautiful work demonstrating this. So when people work in pairs in the very boring lab tasks that we do with them, they're very likely to show the same overall level of confidence. So both of them may be underconfident or both of them may be overconfident, but very rarely is, one, is there a discrepancy between them. So this is fine. This is a very useful heuristic for working together to make decisions. But there is an obvious problem. It works well if the two people working together have the same degree of skill. But if they're not equally skilled, they should not use the same, they should not equate their confidence. So the more skilled person should be systematically more confident, and the less skilled person should be systematically less confident in order that you can choose the appropriate decision each time. And again, we find that unfortunately people typically equate their confidence even when they shouldn't. And this is messes up their group performance. So in other words, when a skilled person works with an unskilled person, they actually have a group disadvantage because the skilled person is taking, paying too much attention to the responses of the unskilled person. Now you might think that this is a sort of typical feature of our Western liberal society where we're all too nice to each other, but our chairman has recently shown that you get exactly the same result in China and even in Iran where people's attitudes to each other is very, very different. So this seems to be a sort of almost universal tendency that when working together, we may sometimes make the mistake of treating each other equally when we shouldn't. And again, I can see this an extreme version of this in real life. 
which is in these terrible TV programmes where in, in order to obtain balance we have a debate between a restrained researcher with a mound of data paired with a dissenting amateur who has a few anecdotes. This is, again, the equality problem. Now, the fourth problem, which I will speak very briefly about because the next speaker will tell us much more about it, I hope, is that we give too much weight to shared knowledge and we do not take advantage of what only a few people in the group know. Again, this is an unfortunate and an unintended, by evolution, I suppose, consequence of a useful mechanism creating optimal group behaviour. And this is that humans, just like the insects and fish and so on we saw just before, we tend to align ourselves with the rest of the group. So, as I say, you see it in shoals of fish, you see it in football crowds. This is spatial alignment. But we also tend to imitate the actions of others. We see this as a so-called chameleon effect. When two people are having a conversation, they typically cross their legs at the same time. And when we're conversing, we tend to align in the sense of using the same words, the same syntax, and even the same speech rate of the person we are talking to. And there's even a study claiming that comprehension is better if we imitate the foreign accent of the person that we are talking to. <laughs> This is something I would have never risked doing myself, in spite of having spent 50 years living with a person with a foreign accent. <laughs> so this creates, a, and if at high level, cognitive levels, this creates a disadvantage because we also align things like knowledge and goals and beliefs. So in a group, there's a tendency for us to pay attention to the knowledge that we all have in common and pay much less attention to the knowledge that we don't share, and this you will mention. It's called, for some reason, the hidden profile effect. So this is just another example of how a useful mechanism can have strange effects at the edges, as it were. And the last problem I want to talk about arises in competitive situations where we think that everybody else is cleverer than... Our opponents are cleverer than they really are. So what I was just talking about is in cooperative situations where we align ourselves and think we're all equal. In competitive situations, we are much more concerned with differences between ourselves and others. Can I get an advantage from something I know and you don't? Will you get an advantage from something that you know and I don't? We're constantly trying to outthink our rivals to get, prevent them from getting one over the, us. So, for example, we want to predict what others are going to do next. And it helps if we know something about their mental states, what they intend, what they know, what they believe. This ability is sometimes called having a theory of mind or mentalising, and it's something that most of us are rather good at. But it comes at a price, because we sometimes see intentions where there aren't any. In our computer, which is constantly failing to do what I want it to do, the way the trains run, so they deliberately leave the station just when you're trying to get onto them, and, of course, the weather, which shows extraordinarily bad intentions. This, this attitude can be disastrous. And one example is that if you attribute mental states to the stock market, it can cause financial bubbles followed by crashes. So an example of this on a smaller scale... <coughs> It's something called the information cascade. So in an information cascade, people ignore their own private knowledge and follow the behavior of others. 
So if others are seen to be buying shares, they assume it's because these people have secret inside information. And therefore, if, it, if they do have secret information, it's, of course, rational to follow their behavior. But often this assumption is false, and the situation may arise where everybody is mistakenly following everybody else for no good reason. It's exactly like the Betamax case that we just heard about. And the more they f- the followers, the bigger the bandwagon effect becomes until the final and inevitable crash. So once again, we have a useful mechanism, mentalizing, that in certain circumstances can cause our group decisions to be really disastrous. But finally, I would just say there's one advantage, perhaps the only one, that humans have over ants and bees, and that is we can observe our own cognitive processes, we can discuss them as here, and discover when and where they go wrong. And in principle, we should be able to find ways around all the problems that these clever tricks bring with them but it doesn't seem to have happened yet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to give you a sort of a rather sort of scrambled uh, set, a collage, really, of uh, things that psychologists uh, and some economists have done that sort of illustrate, well, at least questions about, you know, how reasonably uh, people behave in uh, group or crowd contexts. And a very famous uh, st- uh, experiment in social psychology is uh, Ash's conformity experiment, which many of you, I'm sure, will, will know about. But for anyone who doesn't, um, the sort of shocking discovery in this study was that if you ask people to say, uh, they've got to look at these two cards here. You know, there's, uh, can I, there's no pointer on here, is there? No, I don't want to try anything. So you've got these three lines, and you've got one line here, and you have to say which uh, line of the three matches to the line on, the, on card A. And the, the sort of cunning thing about the experiment is that uh, everybody, there's a group of people in the room, I think there were nine people in the room, and they are, they're sitting in a row or around a table, and they're asked one at a time to say, well, which line do you think is, it matches with the... Uh, the, uh, the line on uh, card A. And people go around the room and they, in the first few trials, they give the correct answer. They're all stooges except one person. There's only one participant in the, in the subject. All, all the other eight are friends of the, of the experimenter. And on the critical trials, they announce a patently wrong answer. And the guy at the end, you can see him here, his sort of expression is... What's going on? They're all saying it's, uh, uh, you know, the, the end line uh, on the right, which is plainly it's not. Why are they doing that? And, you know, you can just imagine if, you know, you're, you're in this situation, everyone else in the room is saying, yeah, the third line, the third line. And you say, what am I going to say? I'm, I'm going to say something which is different to everybody else. And then everyone's going to look at me thinking, are you mad? Or, but I'm thinking they must be mad because they're all saying something that I can't believe is correct. And, uh, well, I have a few slides. I mean, this, I should have shown you this as I was talking. Here's the data from, from uh, one of the experiments that Ash did, which shows that uh, most people will conform on at least one trial in this experiment. And 
you know, this is part of an investigation, really, that was inspired, I think, by, you know, the Holocaust. And how could it be that people could behave in the way that obviously uh, happened in Nazi Germany? What was going on? Because it wasn't just, uh, you know, all those uh, war crimes were not committed by a few, you know, evil people with dueling scars and monocles who could click their heels. You know, the whole of, you know, the German uh, bureaucracy was mobilized into coordinate these sorts of actions. Here, in this social psychology experiment, no one is um, threatened with a court-martial. There's no guns involved in the experiment, and yet you see the kind of levels of conformity that you do. So it's a big shock to think, like, well, heavens above, if people behave like that under sort of no real uh, threat to their lives, you know, what, what could they do, uh, you know, with a bit more coercion? Um, here's another little conundrum which um, I think a lot about because that picture on the uh, right there it's not actually the kitchen in the economics department I'm not in the economics department but theirs is the nearest kitchen to mine and it frequently looks like that and I've asked them you know you know about the tragedy of the commons of course um, and actually most of them look rather puzzled when I say that they haven't heard about it but in a, in a, in a curious way you know that it wouldn't it would undermine their sort of belief in their own rationality if their kitchen was neat and tidy because the argument is the original argument about the tragedy of the commons was that where there's common land where everyone can graze their cattle uh, it's not their land then they think oh I think I'll put all my cattle on that common land and everybody does the same and then in, you know, very quickly the common land turns into just a mud patch and there's no grass it's not sort of managed in any responsible way because everyone wants to sort of take advantage of this common resource and similarly you know this this sign at the back as i say this is not the economics uh, department kitchen at city university but you know it does look a little bit like this and there is a sign at the back just like that one which actually says if you do not remove you know your dirty uh, crockery within 20 24 hours, it says somewhat arbitrarily and pedantically, but frighteningly in a big, bold font, then it will be removed. Um, I've never seen anything removed, and it just sort of piles up. <laughs> and then at the weekend, I think the cleaners come in and, and do a job. So, uh, But in the meantime, you know, I have to sort of cope with this ghastly kitchen. Um, and, of course, these individuals are acting in a sort of, in terms of uh, their own narrow individual rationality. They're, they're acting uh, perfectly reasonable, perfectly reasonably. And this kind of thing has been analyzed in, you know, game theoretic uh, context. So in public goods games, where you have a group of people who can, they're all given a certain amount of money, and they can keep that money. It's theirs. And, but what they can do, if they like, is put some or even all of their money into the common pot and then some coefficient will be applied to that money, it will be increased, and then the increase will be shared amongst everybody. Okay, so, you know, you could increase, and if everybody put their money in the pot, then everybody would get more money. But it's in everybody's rational, narrow self-interest not to do it. So the so-called Nash equilibrium, which defines what, you know, the rational solution is, I mean, no wonder they call economics a dismal science, is that you don't put your money in. Okay, so the Nash equilibrium, you know, John Nash, actually, the beautiful mind who, he was killed in a car accident only a few weeks ago, wasn't he? Um, you know, he got his Nobel Prize, basically, for formulating how to analyze uh, games where the outcomes of uh, people's decisions depend on other people's decisions as well, not just on, you know, what you do in a casino, for example. Um, so, 
very depressing that the Nash equilibrium would say what you should do is basically, you know, not uh, do something for the common good. And, you know, you might want to contemplate, well, you know, that might have implications for how we uh, behave in all sorts of contexts where we have to worry about sort of our common fate. Here's some data about people's choices of lottery ticket numbers. And I'm kind of mesmerized by this in a very nerdy way. So very late at night in my office one day, I was writing a paper with... um, a colleague of mine who's um, made a name for herself in studying random behavior, and we were doing this experiment on the game of battleships. Now, if you're my vintage and you went to the right kind of school, then you would have played battleships in your Latin class rather than actually indulge in your Latin class. So, you know, you put a little five-by-five grid up, and then you put three Xs in, and those are your ships, and your friend who doesn't see your grid, he puts three X's up, and that's where he's shooting at your ships. And then you see, you reveal whether you've shot down each other's ships. And we were doing these experiments where we basically showed that when you ask people to put X's in grids, whatever the instruction, they tended to favor the same locations in this five-by-five grid. So if we told them to avoid where other people would go or to go where other people would go, they tended to choose the same locations. And it just seemed, you know, complete nonsense. Anyway, I was sitting in my office later one night, and I had this lottery play slip in my office for a complete other reason. I'm proud to say I've never played uh, the National Lottery. And I thought, oh, heavens, that looks a bit like our battleships game. Let's see what's going on in terms of how people choose their numbers. And you think, like, well, why does that really matter? Well, it does matter. Um, Here's a display that shows, um, I won't bore you with the details of how we did this, but I could tell you how popular all the numbers are on the lottery coupon if you wanted to know. I've got got that kind of data. And you can see it's not even. So the numbers, the low numbers, um, especially uh, numbers which might be birthdays, numbers below 31, they're much more popular than numbers above 31. And there are other strategies that people use for selecting their numbers. So the numbers from 1 to 10 or even 1 to 12 are pretty popular. 7 is the most popular number, and I think it's 46 is the least popular number, and you can see that on my slide. So what, you're thinking, what, you know, what does that matter? Um, oh, yeah, this is the other thing. Over the history of the lottery, and you know it's just about to change. They're going to change it all, so this is the last chance to do this kind of stuff. There have been three different layouts of lottery play slips, and any of you who have played the lottery in the newsagents will have had to tick your numbers on one of these play slips. And they originally had a play slip where the numbers were in rows of five, and then they switched it to uh, rows of 12, and now it's in rows of 10. And, of course, because there's 49 numbers, that's a bit awkward. I think, why don't they have a 7 by 7? It's a perfect square. That's what they have in Germany, right? But we don't do that. <laughs> um, and it turns out that the, the design of the play slip affects which numbers are popular because people have edge aversion. They don't like numbers at the edge. And so they avoid numbers at the edge. And there are a few other things that they do. Uh, They don't put numbers in close proximity. They don't like running consecutive uh, numbers and so on. And these are very common, general, generic tendencies. So what? Well, what happens when they draw the numbers for the jackpot? Right, you've got to get six, all six numbers. Um, Well, it turns out that... um, Let me move to the the kill here... Um, It turns out that the numbers that people choose are not random, but, of course, the numbers that come out of the machine are random. And 
What our analysis has shown is that there are more rollover weeks than there should be. So there are more weeks when people don't win because the numbers aren't all... If everyone was perfectly random, then the numbers would be equally distributed. And then when the jackpot is won, it tends to be shared more than it should be. And so one week, and this is week nine in the lottery, um, 133 people shared the jackpot. Right. So they're watching and they see, I've won. And they can't wait and they're you know, planning how to spend the money. And this was in the days when the jackpot might be 20 million. And what was it this week? It was 16 million, right? And they announced what the jackpot will be. And these 133 people don't know how many other people have won, but there's 132 other people. So they got 122,000 pounds. Well, you know, that's better than a slap in the face, but, you know, <laughs> they're going to have to go back to work you know, at some point. Um, so I thought that was a nice little sort of miniature tragedy of the commons for these people. It's sort of odd that the herding results in, in you know, this sort of unfortunate um, consequence. And it's actually really bad for the lottery organisers. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall because uh, they actually broke the bank because not only the jackpot is a fixed pie and it's just shared, you know, but the three number winners, it used to be the case. No longer they've changed the rules now, of course, but if you've got three numbers, they guaranteed you £10 in the early days. And so if you look at the actual number, total number of prizes that were won that week, where all these very common numbers all came up, um, they exceeded the amount of money that was collected that week that goes into the prize fund. And you imagine you've just won the franchise to, to run the lottery and you think like people say, oh, it's literally, you know, a, a license to print money. And you go bust because you hadn't realized that people do things which you, you know, they probably got lots of statisticians working for the for the national lottery. They haven't got any psychologists. I'm, if anyone from the lottery is here, I'm, I'm available for hire. Um, Here's another phenomenon. There was, a, there was a chap standing here only a few weeks ago. I, I went to talk to Richard Thaler, who's one of the co-authors of Nudge. And one of, if you know about this work on nudging, the idea is that you can get people to do things without forcing them to, without incentivizing them to. You don't have to pay them or pass laws to do it. They will do things because of the way the choice architecture, as he calls it, is. So the way the world is laid out will influence your choices. And it has a, you know, they have evidence in their book, Nudge, which demonstrates this. And this is one of the uh, observations that they discuss in the book, which... Um, is the idea that people respond to social norms. So if you go to a hotel, it's quite common for there to be a sign-up saying, you know, oh, you might not want to, you know, get us to wash your towel every day you're in here. Why don't you sort of hang it on this peg and then we'll leave it and it'll, it'll dry out and you can use it again. And you think, why should I do that? Why can't I have a nice new fluffy towel? And then they try and tell you, oh, well, there's millions of gallons of water that are wasted. And it turns out that's not really a very effective way of changing people's behavior. They don't tend to respond to that. But what they do respond to is uh, a different kind of, and you can't, you're not going to be able to read that, um, but basically, if you tell people that most people do recycle their towels, even if, in fact, they don't, uh, then most people do recycle their towels. So people respond to whatever they think the social norm is. It's a very powerful cue for manipulating people. Well, that's fine when it comes to recycling towels, but what if you have beliefs about things which aren't uh, you know, uh, going to have such benign uh, consequences? Then I think we have a bit of a problem. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. So let me just quickly skip through 
I'm probably outstaying my welcome a little bit, but um, let me just make, briefly zip through a load of phenomena in social psychology, which I, I meant to say at the beginning that the folly of crowds is just what you know, most social scientists would say, well, of course, what else? I mean, I think we're only here because the wisdom of crowds was such a bestseller. And actually, if you read that book at all, it's full of caveats which say, oh, crowds are actually not to be trusted under most circumstances unless you do it this way and unless you do it that way. And, and you know, Chris was talking about some of these uh, important things like diversity and independence and so on. So the the idea that crowds could be uh, a, a, a useful way of improving decisions was a kind of novel well not, I mean Galton is pretty ancient I suppose so it wasn't that novel but assembling it in that way was an interesting counterpoint to what really is the sort of presumption groupthink is a sort of well known actually I think there's a lot of groupthink about groupthink because in fact you know people, oops what have I done I've done something um, how did I do that I hit, I hit my stick I think um, should I get back? To, how do I get back to reality here? Is someone coming down to? Okay. So anyway, groupthink is this idea that people are very strongly influenced in a group context by um, whatever their leader says or whatever the most noisy person in the room says, and they're too lazy to sort of um, challenge whatever it is that's being peddled, and they go along, they go with the flow, and they endorse um, you know the uh, whatever opinion is there, and, and consequently. You can end up, you know, getting into very sticky situations because you haven't really thought through properly, properly what's uh, actually happening. Are we going to get it back? Try. Um, How did I do that? I... Very impressive, Peter. Yeah, I wish I could do that <laughs> to order. Okay. Like yeah, that'll be that's that's fine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these are the famous examples of groupthink which got um, peddled by Janice and Mann. I mean, you, you know, the, uh, the Bay of Pigs, actually, I was talking to someone t uh, today, in fact, who did a study about this and said, no, there's no, there's no groupthink there. You know, like everybody was telling Kennedy, you know, you should be taking a violent course of action, and he resisted that to the very end. And, in fact, you know, you could argue that, you know, I don't know, that wasn't an example where a group uh, prevailed at all. Um, but nonetheless, you know, one can, one can see occasions where groups get out of control because people are not able to challenge. And, you know, the example of Ash's conformity obviously sits uh, with this. Um, hidden profiles. Uh, Chris mentioned this. So, obviously, a group... Of, of people who may have uh, different levels of expertise and many uh, groups are organized in that way. So when you have a case conference, for example, you might have the doctor and the social worker and the lawyer. You've got different people around a table because they have different expertise. Um, and businesses will have the marketing manager and the sales manager and so on. They don't all have the same information or ideas. Otherwise, there's not much point having a group. But crucial to the success of exploiting their diverse uh, inputs is information exchange. Can they talk to each other and exploit the, the, the knowledge that each of them has? And as a chap in the States, Reed Hastie, who's done a lot of work on, on this kind of thing, and it's actually, again, as a lot of this st stuff is, a bit dismal. And here's a sort of a, 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 a grid which explains the kind of experiment that Reed Hastie has done. So each person walks into the room, and they know um, some arguments that favour uh, A as option A or option B, and they've got to decide whether to back option A or option B. 
And each person knows more arguments that favor B than A. Right? So when they walk in, each person will be inclined to think that B is probably the best bet. Okay? However, in these clever experiments, as you can see here, the items favoring B for each of these individuals are the same. It's B1, B2, B3. But the items favoring A are different. So individual X knows about A1 and A2, individual Y knows about A1 and A3, and individual Z knows about A1 and A4. So when you look at the total number of arguments or evidence points that favor each of A and B, there are actually more points in favor of A than B. And if they can discuss this and uncover this, then that should be the, you know, influence their deliberations. If you put people in a room under these circumstances when they're briefed in various ways, they rarely uncover this hidden profile. So they rarely exploit this knowledge. So the nature of the group process does not draw this, uh, this, this uh, in, you know, information out. So there you can see how a group can be you know, dysfunctional. Um, lots of other phenomena in social psychology. The false consensus effect is the idea that people tend to think that whatever they believe is not that everybody else believes that, but they think that more people believe that than actually do. Okay, so because I believe in a certain thing, I will overestimate the proportion of people that believe that. And, you know, there are now studies using uh, social networks to show that, you know, there's a lot of birds of a feather effects. So that, you know, I look at Twitter and I've got 300 people, you know, that I look at, that I'm following. And I think, yeah, you know, the world, you know, they basically go with me. And I don't realize, of course, that these people are, you know, as as weird and as extreme as I am. And there's lots of other spheres out there which would be totally, you know, at variance with the views that I'm looking at. So, and there's even a study, I think someone did this at Warwick, where they showed that the, the weight of people in social groups on Facebook is correlated. So, you know, these people, the heavy people all tend to be together, and the heavy drinkers all tend to be together. And so they normalize their view of what's extreme and what's normal. Because as far as they can see from their extremely diverse experience, you know, they're, they're sort of pretty average and in, in the middle. And it always makes me laugh when the students at university say, oh, there's so many different people here. You know, it's such a diverse, a real melting pot coming to university, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's yuppies from, you know, every postcode in southwest London and some in north London. So. <laughs> and then you think, what are the implications for all these processes, for the sort of common challenges that we have, you know, our common fate that's linked to things like climate change and nuclear disarmament with all of this? You know, you think, like, really, what chance have we got as, as a group uh, to actually tackle these problems in the face of what I've shown you? So, grim stuff. I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I've enjoyed this a lot. I'm sure most of you, if not all, have also done. Uh, I think what we will do is we will take questions from the floor directly and uh, we can probably the, the, the best way would be we will listen to two or three questions and then come back to the panel and then we go back again. And if there was any questions that, that we forgot to answer, I'm sure everybody would be able to, 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 to remind me. So the collective memory should, should help us in this case. All right. Mm, just if anybody has any questions. Uh, yes, go ahead. 
thank you. Um, all the speeches have been uh, very interesting. Thank you very much. My question relates maybe just to the last line that I see now in the, in the slide. So implications for issues that you know, we all as a societies have to face. So what are the implications, in your opinion, uh, on the political decisions and uh, how political decisions are made and how they are formed? I mean, does all this call for uh, political decisions that are more discussed, with people more informed? But in a world like today, where it seems that we've got all the information that we need, are we really able to take, uh, you know, socially well-informed uh, decision? And de democracy, I mean, I think this, all this might have implication on this too. I mean, uh, Plato was against, just, just one second, Plato was against democracy because, you know, he, he thought that Demos uh, was the one that decided to kill Socrates, and that was the wrong decision taken by, uh, by the majority. So I think, you know, there's a lot to uh, explore uh, based on these assumptions. Fantastic. We have the most controversial question starting right from the beginning. We had another question there. Anything from downstairs? Well, um, I'd say great minds think alike. That was also my question I was going to ask. Um, but I was, thinking, I was just wanted to pose an addition to that, which is, do you think Plato's alternative is, has something in it, perhaps the philosopher-ruler being a more enlightened form of social organizing than just relying on uh, groupthink? Okay, that's great. And one more here, and then we go back to this panel. So at the end of uh, Professor Frith's uh, talk, he said, look, uh, in principle, we humans have the ability to reflect on our own uh, uh, groupthink processes. And in principle, uh, though there's not much evidence, you said that we could do it better. And after all, the wisdom of crowds did say, here are all the ways in which we can get the wisdom better. Is it really the case that we've made no progress in the last 10 years or so in designing better methods of committees and better uh, checks and balances in our decision-making processes so that we're still as uh, collectively likely to make bad decisions as before? Thank you. So... Uh any members of the panel that, that have an opinion? <laughs> I guess I still think I probably quite like democracy. Um, going to the first two questions. Um, so although group decisions are sometimes not very good in principle, I think group decisions ought to be better. And our task really is to find ways of making them better and with regard to the last question I'm I'm not sure I mean I'm not I, I probably don't know enough about it because I'm not a political scientist but I my feeling if anything group decisions are getting worse at the moment and certainly um, in academic committees <laughs> it's absolutely terrible but this is <laughs> this is partly a problem that we haven't addressed at all, which is, do people in the group have the same aims? 
which goes back to the game theory, whether you actually have different payoffs. So one person is trying to get the decision to go this way and another person is trying to get the decision to go that way. One thing I didn't talk about which should have done, particularly as Mathieu was here, I don't know whether he still is, which was about talking about the... Um, in cooperative situations relating to this hidden profile effect where we align everything, we align ourselves, which is sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing, but it's a good thing if it aligns our payoffs because I think the original reason for thinking that there might be something called a we mode was that in the tragedy of the commons situation, rather than having your individual payoff, you actually use the group payoff. And the group payoff says we should all put money into the system. So that would be quite a good thing. The, and the last point, perhaps relevant to all this point, is the idea that is the sort of in-groups and out-groups. So that within the in-group, again, relating to things like the tragedy of the commons, you get this nasty suggestion that within an in-group, the free riders, who are the people who don't put the money into the system, may have the advantage because they keep the money and they depend on all the other people putting the money in. But as soon as you introduce competition between groups, it's the groups that have the fewest free riders that can um, win, as it were. So in a sense, the other big problem is that the larger and larger the groups get and the less competition there is between groups, the maybe the more room there is for selfish behaviour in making these decisions. But this doesn't really have much to do with group decision processes. So, yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that, but, I mean, about Plato, he didn't have Twitter, did he? And you, uh, you might think that, you know, we now have, you know, I think this, the question hinted that, you know, we have technology, we have a lot more scientific understanding of things, we have means to communicate. And, you know, it's terribly judgmental to say, you know, well, are, are we, you know, going to make a mess of it or are we going to sort it all out? But one thought that occurred to me was, you know, Stephen Pinker's argument that, you know, violence is declining, you know, so he claims, um, and that, you know, we're not killing each other as much as we used to. And so, you know, we're doing something right. Uh, you know, there's some kind of evidence of some kind of progress somewhere. Uh, so... You know, although all the research is, is, is terribly... Well, the stuff that I talked about, I think, is terribly dismal. Um, <laughs> you know, often that's the nature of, uh, you know, a lot of the things I do. Like, when you study decision-making, you look at errors and fallacies. And when you study visual perception, you look at illusions and so on. It's when things go wrong that they kind of reveal what's going on. But I don't think that means that necessarily we should think that everything is a total catastrophe. You look at what human achievement is, you know, put people on the moon men on the moon anyway. Um, you know, we've done all sorts of things which, you know, are fairly sort of extraordinary and they've all involved collaboration to some degree. I don't really have very much to add. Um, just to reiterate that um, I think it's important to understand the motives behind individuals in the group um, and also how, how much information people have and kind of touching on what you guys talked about, the levels of confidence and how the experts in the field and whether or not we should be um, listening to them and knowing if we can create a kind of uniform scale might help in the decision-making. Um, but I do think uh, group decision-making is certainly better than leaving it to one person to, uh, um, to make. Okay. Uh, perhaps... Uh, 
I will add something before going to the next question. I think it is also very important to, to, to keep in mind that uh, the added accuracy of collective decisions is just one among many different, uh, you can say, functions of, of a group decision-making process. Like one, one other aspect of it is when you have a collective decision, you share the responsibility in that collective decision. You actually, as a group, now, now you, when, when, when you make that decision, if it goes wrong later on, people are less likely to blame themselves. It's, it's, more, it's, it's easier and better, more, more feasible for people to justify the decision that was made, and it's easier and better, uh, more possible to, to defend the, 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 the decisions that were taken given the knowledge at the time. Perhaps, a not so, perhaps an example not in a very good taste is the, the, the example of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But... Uh, that decision was, was achieved by, uh, like, like those who defend it now, they defend it by actually pointing out that this was a, a, a decision that was arrived at by many different uh, sources of evidence and, and, and different people on different panels within all of them, within perhaps United States decision-making process, but, but nobody individually is, is now, we, we cannot, as people who protest that decision now, we cannot go back to any single indiv singular individual. And, and that is one aspect of why collective decisions are interesting and important for human societies, because they minimize regret and, and they, they diffuse responsibility. Could I, okay. could I comment on yes. that? It always struck me that one of the ways that the English civil service, at least the British civil service, works is it's designed so it's impossible to find who made the decision. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, one question here. Um, I read about some of these um, groupthink situations with respect to juries, um, criminal cases especially, that um, the foreman, and I've been a foreman, and I've known that I've led people on um, to come, perhaps come to a decision they might not have come to because I was maybe more articulate or, or was more interested in the system than they were. You get a lot of people who come to a jury because they've been forced to do it and they're, they're not particularly engaged or, under, or maybe they haven't even understood the proceedings. So... And, and when you talked about the way there are powerful people who can influence others and so on and so forth, surely this does have a very bad effect on the justice system where we rely on the jury in most of our cases. I mean, I know other countries don't particularly um, agree with our system. So what's your view in the light of what you've done in your research, all of you? <laughs> um, okay, so, so let's go for the next question here. Thank you. Um, it's all very interesting, but could you perhaps elaborate on the implications for robotics and artificial intelligence from these findings? For example, in, in the biological sphere, the ants, I mean, is it, there must be work going on with technology that's trying to simulate that behaviour. And then what happens with the, the, the folly of crowds? How do you programme that? And we had one more question. Hi, um, I'm actually a civil servant. 
<laughs> um, I've commissioned some work um, which uh, one of the, the, the main conclusions coming from it is that it is harder to nudge groups because they have slower decision-making processes and therefore they are actually more rational. And I'm just wondering what your take would be on that. Excellent question. So, uh, question about juries, about robotics, and about nudging groups. Um, shall we go with you first? <laughs> Whichever of them that, that you want to take first. Uh, well, uh, regarding the question about robotics, yes, uh, especially kind of ants that have shown they can solve many problems has inspired robots and inspired many other things, including in the United States uh, deciding how the distribution of trucks around the city should be done has been inspired by ant algorithms because they always choose the best path. And so there's a company that supposedly uses ant algorithms to decide which, between which cities and how they should move their trucks between the cities. And also in kind of routing of telephone wires and things. So definitely there is um, inspiration. Um, I think so long as, uh, in order to kind of prevent the folly of the crowd, the suboptimal path choice, so long as there is a kind of updating um, mechanism within the robots, they will be fo following these simple rules, responding to each other's behaviours. I've never done the robotics work. I think there's a big team in Harvard that work on it. But so long as they are using the simple rules, scaling it uh, at a collective level, um, and also having this fine-tuning, responding to change, um, negative feedback as well as the positive feedback, using the thresholds to make decisions. A lot of the robotics work uh, I've heard about is to be used in war zones or in uh, kind of natural disasters to try and help That's what they say. I don't know if it's going to be used for malicious purposes. I hope not <laughs> um, in other things, but uh, yes. Um, and in response to the jury, from my experience on animal behavior, um, and I think we touched on it a little bit, that the strong opinion of a few can be dampened out by uh, the naive, um, naive opinions, so uninformed individuals. If there are many of them, enough of them in the group, they prevent any kind of extreme opinion. So it's true that there is social influence. I've not studied it in juries, so I'm not too familiar with that. But um, I like to believe that given this rule of naive individuals preventing such extreme behavior or extreme opinions taking effect, that we can still uh, trust our jury system. Um, in response to the decision-making, again, drawing on my uh, experience in the animal world, there is often a trade-off between speed and accuracy. So in the case of the bees, if they want to make a very quick decision, that threshold drops. Fewer bees are needed to make that decision. But if the decision has to be extremely accurate, then uh, more individuals are needed. And so they adapt uh, that threshold according to what is required of them in that situation. Is it the speed or is it the accuracy? Um, So, yeah, that's all. Thank you. So on the jury question, I mean, I'm sure juries can be, you know, manipulated by people in jury rooms and uh, so on. But 
I just wonder what the alternative is, really. I mean, it might be a bad solution, but it's like, you know, Churchill's joke about democracy. It's a terrible way to run things, but it's the least worst option. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, I mean, why should three be better than 12? I know, I know there's uh, evidence that, you know, well, first of all, the starting point, why do we have 12? I mean, that's been going on for far longer than anyone did any sort of group process research to say, is 12 the optimal number for a jury? I think it's got something to do with the apostles or something like that. It's, got, it's completely arbitrary, really. Um, so I'm sure there's scope for investigating it. You're actually not allowed to interview jurors post a trial, so you have to do it all in sort of simulations and so on. So it's a, it's a little constraining. Um, implication for robotics um, and AI, I, I, I don't know the answer to that really, but I was thinking about the proliferation of uh, apps on mobile phones and the Internet, use of things like TripAdvisor and so on. It's kind of using and groups to sort of uh, steer the individuals who are saying, oh, shall I go here, there, or anywhere? And, uh, you know, it, it may just be happening anyway without anyone sort of introducing it as a, as a particular... Uh, it's just a way of coordinating peop other people's experience, of course. Um, uh, what was the other question? The nudge of the oh, groups. The nudge of the groups, yes. Um, I mean, the example I gave was about, uh, you know individuals, uh, you know, taking the group norm as a cue and then changing as a result, and then presumably that would change the crowd. If you're trying to manipulate a group, yes, I can imagine if they've got to coordinate as a group rather than just behave as individuals, then you would expect it to be a, a slower process. But in a sense, that might be the counterpoint to the juror question that, you know, you'd want people to sit and think a little bit about it before they did it. So, uh, you know, maybe that's not a bad thing. Yeah, the juries, I, it seems to me that Bahadur's research suggests that juries should be told before they have the discussion, they should each decide whether the person is guilty or not, and then you might get a better Probably. final decision. That would be a very simple, which I'm sure will never be taken up. <laughs> <laughs> the AI is very interesting because um, most robotics, they're not that concerned with different agents interacting with each other. But one of the things that I've been very interested in, of course, when we do interact with it, particularly in the sorts of experiments I discussed, when we have to talk to each other about our confidence, we're essentially trying to tell people how our mind is working. And it's quite difficult to do, and we don't really have very good ways of doing it, and we have to agree on words that we're going to use to talk to each other, and there's some this very nice work showing that people working together will actually work out scales for how confident they are and what words they should use to describe them. So the interesting thing is if you have artificial intelligence agents, I mean, so what you can't have with people is brain to, direct brain-to-brain -brain communication. It all has to be done through language. And then I guess in the AI agents or the robots, you could have direct brain-to-brain communication communication, and the question is, which I can't answer, but I'm fascinated, someone should write a science fiction story about this, would this be a good thing or a bad thing? And my intuition is it might be a bad thing. <laughs> but Can then you're, you're just making a much bigger brain and you're having all the problems of lack of independence and so on. Okay. The, um, yeah, yes. the groups, I, I'm not sure I have... I mean, the only thing I can think about that is there's a little bit of work which is not quite the same. If you have a group... You know, two groups competing in some game or other, you would typically have to have a, a representative of the group who makes who 
presses the button or makes the final decision. And I think there's some suggestion, but I may have made this up, that they are more like the, the, you know, the rational Nash equilibrium type behaviour than you get for individuals when they are representing the group. So that's actually going against the cooperative we mode type situation. One thing I can say about the last question, the, 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 whether the groups are rational or not, uh, from, from our own research, is one, uh, one way to look at how, how people, not how rational, but how optimal they are in their decision-making and looking around is by, by, by seeing how, how they are taking into account the changes in their environment in order to make their next, best de- next decision well. Supposing you're, you're, like, like, you're looking for food in, in, in some, some, some uh, environment and, and, and you find some, uh, like, like some food or some money in a job, you, 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 you take that job, you, 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 and then at, after some point you decide this, this job has come to an end, you want to try and, and, and go for a new job. So when you decide to leave your first job and go find a second one is a classical decision-making problem called the explore versus exploit dilemma. It's like, as, as the name suggests, the dilemma of should I stay where I am and explore the resources I have, exploit the resources I have, or should I leave and go somewhere else and explore the world, perhaps find something better? One thing we have found is that groups in general, when, when you ask them to make decisions in these contexts, they, they, they are a lot more conservative in the sense that they are more, a lot more exploitative. So whether the groups do better than individuals and whether they can actually perform better in such an environment it will, will depend heavily on how volatile, how, how variable the environment is and, and how, how quickly you need to respond to changes in the environment. If, if the environment is quickly varying, then, then individuals who actually quickly decide this is, this is enough, I want to go to the next job, they, they, they probably are better. Whereas if, you have, if you're dealing with, with, with a relatively stable environment in which you still have variability, but the structure of the variability over time does not change, then, then a group would do much better than, than individuals. Okay. So I guess uh, that last question leaves uh, the floor for, for, for yourself to think about this. I think that's a very good question. I don't have an answer for it. And as, as you can see, we, we, we are not particularly better opinionated about that specific question as, as a panel either. But thank you so much. This has been a great session, and I hope you all enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you.